from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hey. Hey. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good to be back. We're here. So we have a big topic this week. We're going to talk about the James Webb Telescope. But first, we have a couple of pre-flight checklist items. Yeah. As we do. Tiger knots. And we're going to start in China. Or we're going to, we're going to start uh, back on the ground in China specifically. So we've spoken in the last couple of episodes about this uh, two-week mission that China has set set out on, having two uh, crew members fly, dock, and then test their sort of like space station module. It's not really a space station like the ISS is yet. It's very small. Uh, but it seems like all that was successful. They landed uh, successfully a couple of days ago back on Earth. And one thing I, I want to point listeners to in this article, I didn't really realize this, is that their spacecraft is basically a Soyuz. Like, it looks hmm. the same. It works the same way. It has orbital reentry and a, a, what they call a propelling a module where the, the motor is. It's kind yeah. of funny to see this. Like, oh, that looks familiar. oddly familiar. But hey, it works. I mean, so it right. has a rock solid track. Uh, Classic record, so. design. Yeah. Yeah. So they're back. And, you know, we spoke about it with this long March rocket. There's a lot more coming from China, but uh, I was happy to see that their two crew members made it back to her safe and sound. That's good. Always good. There was a, uh, there was also a rocket launch over the weekend. I was, uh, where was I? I? I was somewhere that I couldn't watch it. I was at a football game, I think, in the rain. Yeah. I watched it. They they launched at the very end of their window. They had some sort of um, communication issue or something with the rocket. And they got it fixed and and launched it right at the end of the window. But this is the uh, the goes R rocket, or uh, excuse me, the goes R satellite, and it's right. what uh, I guess joint mission between NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh-huh. NOAA, NOAA, yeah, uh, and. It's basically like a uh, a weather satellite on steroids, right? It's far more advanced than anything else in use right now. It's like the first of a, of a new generation of weather satellites. Yeah, and because of the steroids, it'll never get into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, mm. baseball joke. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is, there's actually a lot of talk about uh, NOAA being more involved in and taking the lead on sort of earth science in space instead of nasa and so it's interesting that as this talk is going on here we are with this sort of joint venture between NOAA and nasa uh, you know the latest in a long line of collaboration with them and so the it's the geostationary operational environmental satellite r uh and it's gonna you know look at the earth and do uh, weather forecasting and warnings and other things that the, the, its data can help us with so it's got a lightning mapper you know, it's got it's got uh, sixteen different bands of spectral imaging, of so it, you know it's uh yeah it's going to be keeping an eye on us. So, uh, reading into this, this is one satellite amongst a family of satellites, and right now there's sort of a uh, goes east and goes west satellite, and this will take place of one of them. They're not sure which yet. This thing is going to take mm-hmm. like a year of like testing and boot up processes before it starts actually working and they're going to replace either the east or the west one and then there, there's several more planned 
after right. this. And what I like about it and kind of how that kind of their their PR spin on it is that, you know, the, the better these images are, the more refined detail that forecasters can have, the safer people are. So things like the lightning mapper to focus on storms that represent, you know, the biggest threats to, to human life and to property. Right. If you have that information, you can have better warnings, better watches, and hopefully people will take uh, cover, you know, when when necessary. So it's one of the things like we talk about Earth science and some of it, I feel like sometimes like, yeah, it's really cool. Like we're learning about, you know, our planet and its atmosphere. But sometimes that means like real like day to day benefit for people. And this, I think, falls squarely in that camp. Yeah, this is I mean, where would we be without weather satellites, right? I mean, they are very helpful at letting us know a storm is coming and, you know, knowing things like uh, tor- tornado watch and warnings. They're a, bi- they're a big part of it along with along with on-ground radar. I mean, there's so much that goes on in terms of data collection, um, not only big picture stuff about the, the weather on the planet and the temperature of the planet and what happens uh, cycle by cycle, but the, the specific uh, issues of hurricanes and floods and all sorts of stuff like that, that knowing We've got nine in the sky. Uh, it helps a lot. So we should probably talk about what's going on in the U.S. a little bit. Uh, what I've discovered in the last couple of weeks is that there are people out there who see podcasts as a refuge from the news and politics and things like that. And when you want to talk about the election in the U.S., they're like, oh, I don't want to hear you. Don't talk about the election. But we spend a huge amount of time on this podcast talking about what a large United States government agency does. Yeah. <laughs> and so it matters who is in the executive branch because that has a lot to do with what NASA's priorities are going to be over the next few years. And even though we have had uh, a Republican Congress for a while now that has been, as we've talked about before, pushing and pulling with what the Obama administration has wanted to do and funding things they didn't ask for and underfunding things they asked for and all of that. With a Republican administration coming in, um, they, you know, there is going to be less of that push and pull, probably, unless there is, and uh, and some changes in priorities because historically, anyway, um, Republican presidents have had different space priorities than Democrat presidents, although that's changed over time. And the new administration, who knows, it may be completely different than what we'd expect. So, you know, we have to acknowledge it. I think that that there's a, a transition coming that will probably be more dramatic for NASA than what it would have been if there had been uh, party continuity in the executive branch. And and so what that means, I, I suspect we'll find out a lot more in the months ahead. Right now, there's a lot of speculation. And I think it's uh, I think it's not particularly clear about exactly what will happen. Yeah, I, I agree. I've tried reading some things and some predictions people have, but until, you know, people are installed in, in offices and administrators are chosen, it's it's just hard to see where it's going. But it's something we're going to keep an eye on, like you said. It's sort of a yeah. sort of a strange thing about liftoff is, you know, a lot of the other podcasts you and I do, we, we cover, you know, companies, publicly traded companies, but but companies. And this is weird right. that we really cover part, at least when we're talking about NASA, cover part of the government. So, go- yeah, it's it's money from the government. It's planning by the government. It's big government bureaucracies. If you've ever visited, as you and I both have, NASA facilities, uh, it's different because it is a 
big government bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Uh, there's no getting around that. And uh, so it it's going to be, you know, this is where this is where politics and space, you know, they go hand in hand. So we're going to, you know, definitely talk about this more as time goes on about the change in, in administration at NASA and what that all means. Uh, you know, speculation would be uh, so far that it'll mean less funding for Earth science. We talked about NOAA before. I think that there's definitely a trend towards saying we're not going to even fund you know, a lot of Earth science stuff in NASA's budget and NOAA can work on, worry about it. Now, there's some some concern that what that really means is that NOAA is not going to get the funding either. But uh, but it does it. it it's uh, in a different location. But we'll see. Uh, often it, it can mean a change in crewed space programs. And um, there's speculation that the uh, I read an article that said the asteroid redirect mission is a very what they said was a blue mission and going back to the moon is a sort of red mm -hmm. mission, which I think is probably a gross oversimplification of yeah. it. But it may mean some reprioritization where NASA is told, you know, we're not going to go do the asteroid thing. Instead, let's do an international uh, joint venture to do a moon base as part of the steps to Mars. And, and, and you'll see a reformulation of, you know, NASA's nebulous Mars mission plans. Those may change quite a bit. There has been talk of potentially collaborating internationally on something on the moon, even involving the Chinese, which, as we've talked about, is like currently not legal. So that's interesting. I saw a story about that. Newt Gingrich, who has been known to meet with the president-elect from time to time, is a big fan of... Um, of going of making a moon base it's just it's just a fact he's big into moon bases so that's out there too um and, and so there's a lot there's a lot in the wind and then so that's the question is um uh, you know in general republican administrations are actually more favorable to nasa uh which is a uh, you know is a is a strange thing but i think that generally has been the case but this again all bets are off about what will happen this time so We'll have to see, but it's definitely a NASA's a big ship. It takes a long time to turn it, but there will be a new captain. So we'll have to see what happens. And some of that actually comes up in our topic today with the James Webb Telescope, because NASA has to go to Congress for funding. And as we see, we talk about this this telescope project being substantially over budget. <laughs> uh, that you know that comes with political conversations, and so. Um, so yes, yeah, so we'll get to some of that as, as it comes up, but um, yeah. So let's let's dive into this thing. So everyone hopefully knows about the uh, the Hubble telescope uh, has created some of the most famous images uh, in that have come out of NASA in the last twenty years. Uh, it has a sibling, the less famous uh, Spitzer Space Telescope, uh, but the James Webb is the successor to this. It is the next generation of space telescopes. This is a telescope that is not here on Earth. It's going to be put in a rocket and flown. We're going to talk in a minute about where it gets flown to, but it's going to be out um, in space looking out into the the very far reaches of the universe. A few quick facts and stats because we like numbers. So the Hubble had a 2.4 meter mirror. Still has it. It's still it's there. It's still there. It's still got it. It has. Still got it. Not past tense. Eight, eight feet mirror. Eight foot mirror is nice. It's nice. It's, it's fine. Good, it's good size. And how how big's the James Webb mirror? <laughs> That's a little bigger. Uh, Six point five meters or twenty one uh, feet. Yeah, all right. A little bit bigger. Okay, two and a half times. Yeah, yeah. Okay. rolling to town. Almost, bigger three, almost three times the size. Yeah, 
bigger mir- bigger mirrors are better, right? Bigger mirrors c- can collect more light. It's that's the fact of telescopes and getting that getting a bigger. I mean, there are way bigger mirrors on Earth, right? But the thing is, you don't have to loft those mirrors up into space <laughs> right. on a rocket. So getting it up above the atmosphere, space telescopes in general, that's the that's the appeal is our atmosphere is messy and blocks things, blocks certain frequencies, certain certain wavelengths from getting to us. So getting up above the messy atmosphere is uh is a is a good thing. So it is going well past our atmosphere. It is going to be at the Earth's Sun Lagrange point two, which is uh, out past the orbit of the moon, it's actually about four times further away from uh, from us and the moon is. So the moon and the Earth and the sun will all be at the telescope's back. Will be behind the telescope and it will be looking out the other direction. If you can kind of picture it that way, right? It's it's um. I mean, we we will at some point. I want to do like a what's at all the Lagrange points episode because I think it would be fun, but. But yeah, L2 means that it's in a a gravitationally stable location, but it's not it's orbiting with the Earth, not orbiting the Earth. It's basically orbiting the sun al- along with the Earth, behind the Earth. And it turns its back to us and has a it has like a big uh shield mm-hmm. to protect itself from uh from the sun. The the mirror itself talked about being bigger. It's uh gold-coated beryllium uh so if you look at pictures of it, which we have a bunch in the show notes, it looks like a giant uh, the thing that I come back to is like a giant like gold flower. It is segmented. And like you said, this thing has to launch. You have to put in a rocket and, and take it up there. And so it is composed of 18 hexagon shaped segments that sort of unfold once it's launched. It's like a big beehive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really actually a beautiful piece of hardware, I think. Mm-hmm. Everything's better when it's coated in gold. <laughs> so... It's true. So uh, you were talking about it having a shield. Uh, you want to get into that a little bit? It's going to be out there, floating around, uh, away from the away from the Earth and the Sun, and uh, it's an infrared telescope. And that means so so infrared radiation comes from like heat. Heat can generate infrared radiation. That's they're all kind of of a kind. You got it for the for the instrument to not be swamped by. Uh, noise from heat it has to be very very cold which is fine space is pretty cold that's okay but the sun is very bad at uh, keeping things cold it's really good at warming things up more of an oven than a freezer so there's a blanket the the james webb uh, telescope has this sun shield that will unfurl and uh and and keep it out of the sun's light and keep it really, really cold. So the uh, you know the the sun and the earth and the moon are all going to be shielded from it. They won't get any infrared bleed from it, and that allows the 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 instrument to stay uh, really cold. What's funny is that um, it's keeping the you keep the hot side hot and the cool side cool. The, on the other side of the sun shield, you will have like electronic solar panels, thrusters, all of that stuff. It's just the light capturing stuff that happens on the uh, on the uh, shielded portion. And so it's a very clever, complicated design. This is one of the reasons, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that this thing is so expensive and has been delayed for so long. It is an incredibly ambitious design to get this giant telescope up there that, you know, essentially I think would not, would have probably died at several points if it were not for the fact that the Hubble has done such an amazing job that it's just proof like 
these space telescopes are worth it in the end. And the the hot and cold side really lends itself to this this amazing design. And it's actually open, like you know, the, the Hubble. If you've seen pictures of it, is enclosed. It's like kind of like a long soup can, and all the yeah, it's a can. All the stuff is inside of it. When you're dealing with infrared light, uh, you, it, once it's in there, it can bounce around. It can cause problems with the the optics, but it's also harder to keep cool enough. And and they want this side to be as cold as possible. So everything is out in the open to the vacuum mm-hmm. of space on the the cold side. Um, it's really a phenomenal design. Like you said, it's one that really pushes the envelope. It doesn't look like anything we've seen before. It has all these new ideas uh, that have gone into it. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird, uh, un- it's not It's not like a big Hubble, That that's for sure. It's Instead, it's this combination of, you know, hot side, cold side, sun shield, open, you know, open telescope with mirrors on one side and all the other equipment on the other side. So uh, part of, of what it's doing is to look at faint objects. And to do that, it needs to break light down to its component colors, uh, looking at the spectrum for scientists to analyze. And this collection can take uh, days or even weeks, according to one article I read, because these objects are so faint, they're so far away. Yeah, that's that's the whole point, right, is to look as far back. And the, the, the further out you look, the further back you look, you're looking through time. Right. And because of the speed of light and the expansion of the universe. And uh, so if you want to look further back, it's got to be fainter. Like we're th- this, this telescope is essentially designed for the stuff we can't see because we can't see the objects that are f- below a certain point. And that's the whole point of this telescope, or at least a big point of it. And so it's got to it's got to look at the faintest of objects. And uh, that's that's really hard. Uh, and, and it takes time. And so it would limit the the amount of observation that could be done if the telescope had to to look at one section of sky for days or weeks at a time. And so what the engineers have done are created a system called micro shutters. And it, it's basically four postage stamp sized um, devices called arrays. And each of them have 62,000 microscopic shutters that open and close to allow uh, light in from only from a very targeted area of the sky. So if if you think about looking at a window with four panes in it, uh, it can open one of the panes and view you know that line of sight and then close it and open another one independently. So it has the ability to look at a bunch of different s- tiny slices of sky at once. So if a section needs to be viewed for one day, then that shutter should open for a day. And if it needs to s- another section needs a week then it's independently controlled of all the others. So it can multitask in, in what it's seeing. And with the whole thing, the uh, it's believed that the telescope can actually see like 100 distinct objects at once, hmm. which is pretty awesome. It's another amazing bit of engineering <laughs> that goes into this thing. It's uh, it's really, I mean, the more I read about it, I was like, it's just it's just fascinating. Uh, no, it's it's a it's an incredibly complicated piece of equipment that is is so ambitious and that means it's super expensive it's so expensive oh yeah so originally it was going to cost 824.8 million dollars million seems reasonable million sure. right yeah uh, but that didn't work out, did it? N- nope. <laughs> uh, wh- what was the initial uh, launch date for that plan, by the way? 
2002? <laughs> I think we think we missed uh, it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was it, it was not yeah, it didn't it didn't work out. It didn't work out. And this is a, pl- a project that started in 1996. And the plan originally was 2002 um the that was the main contract when it was awarded the original quote was 500 million uh but that didn't really work either <laughs> so yeah so then they de- in 2005 they delayed it added uh you know added 2 years to the time frame and said we're going to launch this in at that point they pushed it all the way back to 2013 this is so obviously a series of pushbacks here but but um that that changed the budget to 4.5 billion dollars wow um by 2011 um they had decided that it was going to cost about four times what they had originally proposed it was going to be at least seven years late um it was it began being investigated by the house of representatives they um threatened to cancel the entire project and what ended up happening was they approved the project. They didn't. They did. They scrapped plans to cancel it, but they set a budget cap. Uh, and so this is one of those things where they basically it's like it's like your parents saying, "All right, you know, you can have here's your allowance, <laughs> but that's it. That's it. That's all I'm giving you. I'm giving you these twenty dollars or whatever." And so Congress said, "Okay, eight billion, but not a penny more." So wow. yeah. It's still gonna. It's gonna cost more than eight billion, by the way. But they're they're still talking about launching it in 2018. It sounds like they by limiting the budget, they have um, they have uh, focused the project, and it is continuing to kind of move through its paces to be built and tested. It sounds like one of the main ways that they have dealt with um, some of the budget issues is by reducing some of the the testing that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, sounds dangerous, but they're still doing a lot of testing, uh, a lot of testing. That's actually, I think it's basically built and they're spending the next two years testing it before they yeah. launch it. So that's that's kind of why it's in the news and why we wanted to talk about it. Uh, the beginning of this month, NASA celebrated the completion of the the telescope and the integrated science like instrument modules that a lot of the electronics are done. And uh, right now it's it's undergoing... Basically, shake testing, so they they fold yeah. it all up and make sure that it can survive intact uh, a launch. Yeah, they want to they want to shake it and have the noise of the actual rocket launch that it would be going up with to see if there's any damage because uh, this thing costs eight billion dollars. You really don't want to break it. And the those gold uh, cover or the brilliant you know gold plated beryllium covered panels are very thin. And the thing has to not only survive, but it has to survive and and unfold and do all of its work. So, yeah, that's another thing that they've been testing, and I think are going to continue to test is the folding and unfolding procedure because they want to make sure that there aren't any snags in that. Because again, there are so many different places where this mission could fail, and one of the ways this mission could fail is if. Uh, you know, it doesn't unfold. The sun shield doesn't unfold. The mirrors don't unfold. They they are flying up in a rocket that's going to be a very limited amount of space. So it's all going to be folded up. And then in space, it has to unfold. And unlike Hubble, which is in low Earth orbit and we could send the space shuttle to fix, although we don't have a space shuttle now, but theoretically you could 
equip something and send it somewhere in low Earth orbit to fix uh, some something like a like a, a Hubble telescope. Um, it's going to be at L two. It's four four times further than the moon. Like we're not going to be driving the pickup truck out there <laughs> to fix it if it if it if it breaks. We should talk about Hubble at some point, but it had an issue with one of the mirrors and the sh- shuttle mission had to go and basically reel it in and and do very like a manual physical repair and this all has to not only deploy this complicated unfolding maneuver but everything has to be a-okay because once it's off the launch pad it's 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 gone so it's going to like i said scheduled for 2018 right now they're saying october um the nominal mission time is five years but they have a goal of 10 if things go well and they get funding it it uh, is believed to be operational for 10 years which is uh, which is good, and it's going to be attached to the rocket that it's launching on um, via a vehicle adapter ring, and so they're they're they are thinking ahead a little bit that you know at some point maybe we could go out on the SLS with Orion to this thing if we need to, right? But I think the reality is that unless something catastrophic happened, that what. <laughs> And SLS and Orion were ready, and they thought they could fix it, and they thought it was worth the money and the time and the risk. I think this thing is going to be basically send it up, and and that's it. Yeah, well, I mean, you do want to plan, right? Because you spend eight billion on this, and you and you're talking about doing deep space missions fairly soon. And this would be a deep space mission. You could even argue. I'm sure somebody at NASA argued. Look, if there's a problem with the James Webb telescope, or we could extend its life, like they did with Hubble, with a service mission. Um, maybe that is a good mission to put in our deep space arsenal, right? Maybe that, maybe that fits. Mm-hmm. Maybe that, it, that is a, you know, as good a thing to try as an asteroid redirect or something like that, because it gets us out beyond lunar orbit, uh, and trying out these things that we want to try out before we send anybody to Mars. So I could see, I could see that like, and NASA is so much about, you know, planning ahead for these these eventualities, and you know, and we saw with Hubble that they that it and turned a potential disaster into a a device that's outlived its expected life by so much because there was some some maintenance. So I could see it as a possibility, but you're right; it's most likely something that's going to get launched and it's going to work or not, and that's it. It's a little uh, intimidating, I'm sure, if you're working on it with a price tag like that. Yeah, I mean, no, it's eight billion dollars of uh, American taxpayer money. No, no pressure. Yeah, don't don't mess it up. So we we spoke a little bit about this, but the reason this is so important, the reason they're going through all this effort to have a hot side and a cold side and put it out past the moon with all the light from the sun and the Earth and the moon behind it, is to see further out and, like you said, Jason, further back in time than any other observatory. It's it's believed that ho- hopefully the James Webb with its infrared capabilities will let scientists see galaxies forming just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, which is closer than we are now by a, a good bit. And it's possible yeah, because we're going to be lo- beyond all that that debris, beyond all of that light pollution, and just out in the darkness of space. Yeah, we won't have the, the atmosphere getting in our way um, and temperature getting in our way, which happens on Earth, right? Because it's not close to absolute zero here, even in the winter. And... Um, 
the uh, you know they're they're thinking about possibly being able to see what are called I think population three stars, which is a bad name for it, but the idea is early on in the lifetime of the universe, the very first stars to form would have been entirely made out of hydrogen and helium, uh, Big Bang remnants. But this is early. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Before other elements were created in large numbers by nucleosynthesis, which is by stars fusing out new elements and exploding and seeding the universe with them, uh, what happened was it was largely hydrogen and helium that were available uh, created by the Big Bang, the initial nucleosynthesis in the Big Bang. And so those stars should be hopefully visible, the, the sort of like the first generation of stars in the universe. And that's one of the things they're hoping to see. And who knows what else you could see, right? Because you are peering back in time. The further, the dimmer it is, the further away it is, the more redshifted it is, that's the further back in time. But it, it's more than just sort of exploring the edges of the universe. I mean, you've got this tool that is going to be out there that's going to be able to see much cooler objects. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to see, you know, be able to see through uh, some of the dust that's out there, like you said. And so there's all sorts of other things that we could see. We could see brown dwarves, uh, which are, you know, are, are uh, very cool objects, rogue planets and things like that. Um, we may be able to spot things like exoplanets with this. It's possible that this will be an exoplanet spotting tool, especially nearby exoplanets. Uh, Kuiper Belt objects, we, we've spotted some of those from Earth, but this might be a much more effective tool at doing that. There are lots of different uses for this. It's not just to explore back to the edge of the universe. There are other things that can be done with the space telescope uh, and with these powerful infrared cameras. And uh, yeah, and, and it will, assuming all goes well. And uh, it makes it up there in a couple of years. I should mention, uh, James Webb was the second administrator at NASA, and he basically ran NASA during the run-up to Apollo. He retired right before the moon landing, but uh, that's what, that's who that guy is, who we keep ta talking about. That's why they named a telescope after him. He was the NASA administrator during the entire run-up for the Apollo missions, and that's why he's the person being honored with uh with this telescope it's worth mentioning since uh you know you may not know who the heck that guy is he is not the guy who created spider-man in case you were wondering the whole time <laughs> yeah that was stanley not james webb uh if you want to see a picture of the james telescope and see a bunch of links to stuff we've talked about this week you can do that at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 34 there you can get in touch with us uh, via email or you can find us on twitter jason is at j snell you can find me there as ISMH. Until uh, until next time, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios.